It's the beginning of the new year, and do you know what that means? It's time to plan out what poultry you're going to order in 2020. We highly recommend My Pet Chicken because they have so much to offer. You can order day-old chicks and waterfowl, chicken supplies, hatching eggs, and there's a wealth of information on their website. Their customer service is some of the best I've ever personally experienced, and I love how I can mix and match all the breeds that there are like no breed minimums, and they're not bossing me around telling me what I have to do. I totally got 18 different breeds last year, and they all arrived happy and healthy. So go to mypetchicken.com slash drink and farm to put in your chick, duckling, or gosling order. That link lets them know that we sent you, and it's a great way to support our podcast and fulfill all of your poultry addiction needs. Oh, hey there, Sam. Oh, hey, Bev. What you drinking over there? I just opened a North High Brewing Company milk stout. Ooh. And it is made with roasted malts that add bold notes of cocoa and coffee to the delightfully dark ale, while the delicate sweetness of milk sugar creates a smooth, velvety finish. I just had to read the can because I had a picture of a cow on it, and it talks about cocoa. And it's a local Columbus brewery, and it's delicious. Nice. So what did you open over there? Or what are you drinking? You didn't open anything. I didn't open anything. I was so (laughs) quiet over here. People might feel a little cheated that they didn't have two bottles opening. But I made um, some hot cocoa with caramel vodka and rum chata. Mm. So it's a party over here. (laughs) That sounds delicious. And I'm feeling a theme with our drinks over yeah. here. Yeah. Yes. But we'll get more about, or we'll tell you guys more about that shortly. But this is totally appropriate. I needed something warm because we've had this really weird weather here and we have so much snow. And then it kind of like rain and froze. So now we have crunchy snow and oh. it's just super icy out. So I needed something warm today that was on theme. That was a good idea. I should have had a warm drink, too. My fingers are still a little frozen from farm chores. I bet. (laughs) And welcome to We Drink and We Farm Things. This is the farm comedy podcast that is an adult happy hour for the farming community, from hobby farmers to large-scale real deal farmers. We drink adult beverages, talk about the ups and downs of farming things, and give zero clucks about not having the perfect farm life. We keep it real with you and share the mistakes we've made and the new knowledge we gain. So hopefully you don't feel so alone in this farm thing. And sometimes we go off on tangents that are non-farming related, but we cut a lot of those and put them up on the Patreon. That's right. And this episode's outtakes are exclusively for our Patreon peeps. So go to patreon.com slash drink and farm and sign up if you haven't already. It's a great way to support the podcast starting at $2 a month. And we put some exclusive recordings up there, pictures, all sorts of fun stuff. And you should definitely go check out the Patreon levels because we change them all. And some of the levels even send you like free t-shirt or a free t-shirt every month. So go check it out. For sure. And speaking of the Patreon, our drink peep this episode is Molly K from at hippie underscore hens underscore hacienda over on the Instagram. So cheers, lady. Woohoo! So I do have some follow up from our last episode, which if you guys haven't listened yet, we gave you an update on how we're doing with our 2020 goals. And you might be like, well, 2020 just started. That's stupid. Like, why would you give us a status update so soon? But really, it wasn't (laughs) stupid because, like, it's a really big deal. Because if you think about it, like, a lot of people will be like, "Mm, I'm going to go to the gym every day. But by, like, the second week of January, they're sleeping in, like, the rest of us who aren't going to the gym every day. So it is a big deal that we've made it this far. And Bev shared some great updates about her food waste like goals with her family and that was really cool to listen to and I talked a little bit about my farm savings account 
But we also like really harped on like not kicking your own ass while you're kicking ass in 2020 and being kind to yourself and setting reasonable goals. And it was so weird because I decided to listen to an episode of a podcast called Professional AF because I do have a big kid job and I have to remember that I have to be professional there. <laughs> and God, I love that name for a podcast. Right? It's perfect. I'm totally going to start listening to that. <laughs> you should. It's super good. And they had an episode there and we'll link to it in the show notes. Um, they had an author named BJ Fogg on there and his new book is coming out and it's called Tiny Goals. And his focus on the podcast episode talked a lot about the psychology of goal setting and how sheer willpower is never good enough and that you shouldn't beat yourself up if you're trying to do something really big and just doing it based on willpower. So it's a super good listen. I might actually snag the audiobook for Tiny Goals um, because it was like that inspiring. But he talked about things like you know, if you want to, that well, first, and I thought of you, Bev, when he said this, he said that met, picking a goal of meditating every day is one of the hardest goals that you can pick. Really? Yes, it is. So he even talked about how you can start out as small with a goal of meditation. And this is just an example um, of like just sitting in a chair and getting that part into your routine and then sitting in a chair and taking three deep breaths and that's it. And if you want to do more that day, you can totally do more. If you don't, then you don't shame yourself for not hitting the really big goal because you hit your your minimum for the day. That's actually a really great idea because, yeah, I, I had a really hard time getting into meditation. My husband, like, knocked it out of the park. He was, like, super into <laughs> it. But also... Um, we use a meditation app. It's called Headspace and it gives you virtual badges. And my husband is really into virtual badges. <laughs> but like I'm not. Like I couldn't give less shits about virtual flair. Like I just for some reason that just doesn't motivate me. So I couldn't use that as my motivator. But the way that I got meditating into my routine and actually, so today's the 19th, spoiler alert if anybody's curious when we actually recorded this thing, uh, I have been meditating for 19 days and I started with a bedtime meditation. So that was how I started because I was already laying in bed. And now normally I fell asleep during it, but I didn't consider that a failure because I think Mm -hmm. meditating yourself to sleep is actually really good because I slept better. But now I started adding a wake up meditation too. So... Now I meditate before I go to bed. I meditate right when I wake up. And then I'm going to eventually add one for the midday to reset myself because I'm having trouble focusing during the day. Like my brain it just like feels like really scattered. So I'm trying to figure out how to like put my hands around it and get it to do the things that I need it to at the times I need it to. <laughs> well, what's funny that you say that because my brain will spiral randomly And since listening to that, I just tell myself to slow down and take three deep breaths whenever I catch myself doing it. And that is enough to like break it so I can refocus. So I wouldn't necessarily calling that meditation, but I call it mindfulness. Um, Yeah. And another thing that he mentioned too that might be helpful to people is that you need to start calling yourself a person that would do X, Y, Z. So maybe your goal is like making your bed when you get up which is one that I've started adopting. (laughs) Um, It feels nice when you walk into your bedroom after a long day of work and your bed's made and it's not something that I normally do. So I tell myself in the morning, I am the type of person that makes her bed when she gets up. Or I am the type of person that makes the bed when before I go to work, depending on my situation for the day. So if you say I'm the type of person that meditates, Um, you're starting to embrace that and and walk those steps out. So a lot of goal setting is psychologically based and integrating it into your into your workflow or, or your lifestyle. And if you're just like, you know, I'm not going to do this anymore, or I'm going to do this immediately. and, And there's no psychological thought process or manipulation with it, you're gonna fail. It's just human nature. Yeah. And so there's a word for what you're doing. Uh, You're giving yourself affirmations. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So that's what the word is. You're affirming who you are and what you are rather than saying, I want to be a person that makes my bed in the morning. You're saying a statement, I am the type of person that makes my bed in the morning. And in fact, like in my, I use a journal. Well, it's not a journal. I use a planner every day. 
It's called Panda Planner. And in fact, I'm part of their like <laughs> beta group for um, it's called Panda Planner Quarterly. I backed the Kickstarter for it. So I have a new style of planner and there's an affirmation and a focus every day. And so my affirmation for the day is always an I statement. And it's something positive that I want to do with myself. So mm-hmm. like, you know, on a day where I have a feeling I'm going to be like really rough, it's going to be a rough day with the kids. I'm like, I am a mom who stays calm and responds to things in love. (laughs) (laughs) Do you laugh maniacally as you like write it down and then think about crossing it out? Because I would. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But like I do find that I recover more quickly after I've made that statement, mm, it's it's all okay. totally psychological yeah. for sure. But it, it works and there's science behind it because if there wasn't, I don't think there'd be so many groups and people out there doing it, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. Uh, close out this segue by saying I am a drinker and farmer. <laughs> Same. Yes. I am a person who gives zero clucks. <laughs> And you know what else I am? What are you? I am a person that breeds my goats. You are. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Okay. So tell us more about that because I saw it in the group and I know what you were just doing before we hopped back on here. So tell me all about it. So I found someone that is going to provide stud services for the goats. And I made breeding the goats my like number one farm goal and that's for a reason it's something I've been talking about for like two years but I'm so introverted I have trouble like asking people for things and like reaching out cold when you live in a place that's really rural it's impossible to get anything done without doing that because not Mm -hmm. everybody has a pretty website where they tell you everything that they do yeah exactly (laughs) Like they just don't they just don't they're too busy yeah (laughs) yeah they are they're too they're too busy doing their thing to put all of that stuff together they don't need it so why put all of that extra work in? But anyways, I found her because she had a yearling registered buck for sale inside of a local buy-sell trade group on Facebook, which is a huge no-no these days. You're not supposed to do that. But nobody in my county cares. My county buy-sell trade group is still covered in animals. So Good. <laughs> I'm not going to tell anybody what county that is because I don't want Facebook to shut it down. <laughs> and we know they're listening, those little creepers. <laughs> right. But when I saw that, I looked at her buck and I was like, oh, that's a really beautiful, nice looking buck. Well, I'm going to take a shot in the dark and I'm going to message her and ask her if she offers stud services. And she got back to me immediately. And she was extremely helpful. Like she gave me a list really quickly, like up front of what she wanted. She wanted proof of a clean herd, which is a CAE and uh, Johan's test. Yoni's. Yo- Yoni's. Yoni's. That's what it is. I called Yoni's. it Johan's again. Dang it. <laughs> so I've had the tubes and stuff for it probably ever since we did that episode about Yoni's. Okay. And I never did it because I just I knew that the results were only good for a year. I probably should have done it now that I'm thinking back just for practice so that I'd already be ready. And I just, you know, do it on an annual basis when I did their vaccinations. But I just never pulled the trigger. And part of it is because it's kind of scary. Like you're stabbing your goat in the neck with a vacuum tube to get Aww. blood out. <laughs> OK, that's how that works. Because yeah. you're okay. doing a blood draw. Yeah. And um, so once I send those off, I'll get the results back. And once they're in heat, I'll get to take them to this breeder to have the goats driveway bred, which is just a really like simple, funny way to say that we just pull up, get the dough out of the car, and then she brings her buck out, they do it, and then we put it back in my car. <laughs> <laughs> so romantic. I hope it's around Valentine's Day. Oh, gosh. I hope so, too. I'm really excited. But right before you hopped on, I actually did the blood draw, mm-hmm. which was an experience to say the least oh yeah how so (laughs) it went really well we got it done it took about an hour and a half for all four goats but I also vaccinated and did hoof trims at the same time so I was like if I'm gonna have them all in here like we're gonna get all this shit done that I've been putting off because they are due for all of these things Mm -hmm. 
And I have a friend that is a vet tech, so she's already familiar with using vacuum tubes and doing blood draws and whatnot. She just isn't familiar with goats. So all all this morning, she's been watching videos on how to do blood draws on goats. Oh, my gosh. Because <laughs> she was really nervous about it. But we got our first goat up there. It took us forever to figure out how to find the jugular vein because you, you put the needle in the jugular vein. And the way that we did it, we had to put the, I, I can't remember what the technical term is for like the tent that goes over the needle because it's a two-sided needle and you you screw it into this tent-like thing, you put the needle in and then once the blood starts dripping out, you pop the vacuum tube on and then it fills really quickly. Oh. Well, I think we had just worked our goats up so much because, you know, we had to shave part of their necks, which I hated doing in the wintertime. But they were so fluffy. We were <laughs> never going to find the the veins without shaving. So I shaved the smallest possible spot that I could. We figured it out. We thought we found it. We stabbed around, didn't find it. The very first one, though, once she found it. Oh, it was obvious we found it. Oh, no. <laughs> I have never been covered in so much blood. <laughs> oh, no. And I'm laughing about it now because I know everybody's okay. But, oh, my gosh, my eyes got so wide. And you have to really push those vacuum tubes on. Like, this is not – it's not a job for when you're nervous or faint at heart at all. Like – you had to like get in there and do it <laughs> and not oh, be grossed man. out by having your hands covered in blood. And we got covered in blood by every goat just because it's messy. Like as soon as it starts to shoot out, there's no stopping it. You just have to pop the tube on. Wow. Okay. So in between now and doing the next one, we're both going to watch a few more videos and see if we can't figure out how to have a better system. Because like we were like, none of those YouTube videos had people with blood spurting everywhere. <laughs> So clearly, like, we either did something wrong or this was just part of the process of learning, mm. which is kind of what I'm leaning for towards. Like, because she does this yeah. on dogs all day long. And she's like, it never, like, she's like, I've never been covered in blood after doing a blood draw on a dog. I was like, well, we could do it with a needle and a syringe and just draw. Mm -hmm. But the vacuum tube makes it easier because it pulls the blood out right. but it's really fast like you have to be like on it and moving and have everything ready and everything set up and yeah so it was a good experience though and next time because we're going to do it again um i can't remember how many days we're supposed to do it but it's like 45 to 60 days after the goats have been bred we're going to do this again on the three does and send them off for a pregnancy test just to confirm so that we're not ah. guessing that it's been successful okay because uh, the lab test, it's only $6.50 per goat, oh, plus the cost great. of shipping. So I was like, yeah, on three goats, I'll spend 20 bucks to make sure everybody's bragged up. Yeah. You know, <laughs> rather than waiting five months and then find out they're not. <laughs> yeah. That's how we roll over here, though. It's like, yeah. surprise, time for babies. <laughs> Yay. Well, it's our uh, favorite time of the month over here. It's time for our Henry and Rue corner. Woo woo. Yay. So exciting. Always love having this box show up on my doorstep. Same. So if you're new here and you're not familiar with Henny and Rue, it is a monthly chicken subscription box. And there's actually a new setup that is being rolled out that rolled out that we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, but this week in I didn't really read the card at first, but then I stopped, you know, going through the box excitedly and read the card. And it turns out it's like Henny and Rue's four year anniversary. Oh, that's yeah. so awesome. Yeah. So super cool. Congratulations to our friend Tina over at Henny and Rue. That is a really big deal. Um, so there was a lot of fun stuff in the box this month to celebrate that. Um, but Bev, what was your favorite thing in the January box. So my favorite thing was the chicken poop lip balm. I have gotten some of that before <laughs> and I love it. It's like my favorite chapstick ever. So it's on yes. my desk. I use it every day. I love it. And I was so excited to get another one. <laughs> Me too. I put it right on my nightstand because this time of year I always put chapstick on at night because my lips get dry doing out side stuff and just not probably drinking enough water so super pumped um and i really just admire people that don't lose chapstick before the tube's gone 
So I'm trying to view one of those people by putting it on my nightstand. <laughs> you are one of those people. <laughs> I am one of those people. Dang it. <laughs> oh, and it contains no chicken poop, just in case anybody was yeah. confused. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so what was your favorite thing from the box? So I think my favorite thing was the uh, Grow Tend Love Canvas Wristlet. Um, because I can use that for chicken stuff or I can just use that for myself. I'm still deciding what I want to do, but I think it'd be super handy for like really small chicken related items that I need to stick in like my overall chicken emergency kit box. Like the, um, what is it called? Save a chick electrolytes that we got. Um, they're just the individual packets, which I love and never have enough of, but sometimes like I rip one off and then I got like two together or one together. So that little pouch is perfect for like sticking those in. So that's probably what I'm going to end up doing. So really those two items for me were just meant to be in this box. (laughs) Oh, that's awesome. (laughs) And then we also got a bag of Hentastic treats, which are high protein treats to keep your flock happy and healthy. And we got some flock party mealworms as well, which is a fun little snack. And it's high in nutritious protein and fat, which both those treats are pretty great to have on hand this time of year, especially with the weird weather here in the Midwest where it's like getting really warm and then it's cold and then it's warm and it's cold. That's just like asking for someone in your flock to get some kind of weird funk. So keeping those high protein treats around is always great. And we also got some sweet PDZ coop refresher, which is awesome for helping keep the coop fresher just a little longer. Uh, and people put it underneath the roost bars of mm-hmm. their chicken coop, and it helps just kind of extend the time between cleanings. Yes. And we did also get a poultry breed guide because it's that time of year, like we mentioned at the beginning of the episode, where you start planning for that. So that is a great source of inspiration um, to look through while you're lounging on the couch, um, deciding what you want to order from mypetchicken.com slash drinking bar. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then we also got a feed clip bag, yes. which will help clip your feed bag closed and keep it fresher longer. But we already have an alternative use for it, don't we? Yes. We're going to use it for like our chips inside the house. Yeah, because it's super cute. Because it's so cute. Sorry, chickens. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And as always, there's a nesting box liner that can be used in your coops with your mature hens. Um, And it's compostable. So what's not to like about that? Exactly. So if you aren't subscribing to the Honey and Roo box yet, go to honeyandroo.com and use code Drink and Farm. You'll save 10% off your first box. And then after you become a subscriber, you also save 10% off on everything in the shop over at honeyandroo.com. So it's a win-win. Yes. And if you go to honeyandroo.com and click subscribe, you're going to see the Honey and Roo Honey and Rue Poultry Supply and Gift Box. That's what we get every month because we really like getting a variety of things and we like getting gifts for the chicken keeper because treat yourself. Um, so we get that one, but there's this brand new box too. That's Honey and Rue Treats Only Box. So you can check that out if you just want to focus on the treats. Um, so I kind of, I it's interesting. I like that she's got a variety now of different options for people, including the farmhouse boxes. So yeah, make sure you just go check all of that out. So today we're going to talk about the second to last episode of the Netflix Rotten series for season two, Bitter Chocolate. Yes, honestly, I'm a little relieved that we're starting to get to the end of these rotten episodes because they're real downers. Yeah, but I will say, in a little bit of a spoiler, this is the first one where I felt hopeful at the end. True. That is absolutely true. So just in, like, true rotten fashion, there's a lot of fear-mongering and juxtaposition of, like, happy chocolate, scary chocolate, happy chocolate, people being <laughs> sad, harvesting chocolate. Um <laughs> And it kind of alludes to, like, every time you eat chocolate, remember that cocoa farmers destroy trees in the forest to make your chocolate that you eat in December for Christmas. Even though, like, we know Christmas isn't the only time people enjoy chocolate. Right, Bev? Yeah. No, I enjoy chocolate year-round. Thank you very much. (laughs) 
Oh, yeah. But I, it's kind of funny that they just picked Christmas because then I was thinking, like, well, what about Easter? Like, chocolate bunnies. You know? Yeah. But whatever. They want to pick on Christmas. That's fine. But I thought it was really funny that they were just all talking about, like, how, you know, chocolate is like a luxury item or it's a little bit of heaven that you get to eat. And then, you know, the real story of chocolate is a supply chain where our affordable luxury is paid for in misery and exploitation. And I'm just kind of like, uh, so dramatic. But it turns out that's actually pretty spot on. Yeah, because farmer poverty is what makes the chocolate industry possible. Womp womp. (laughs) And farmers pay the price for our cheap chocolate, which, when you really think about it, is not a sustainable business model. Mm-hmm. And some people are even likening the industry to modern day slavery, which sounds pretty familiar because that's what they mm-hmm. were talking about in the sugar episode. And they even say that chocolate is a pyramid scheme where farmers are at the bottom, which I was like, whoa, how is that possible? They're the uh, ones making the thing possible. Yeah. And that's a pretty bold statement because a lot of people are very triggered by the phrase pyramid scheme, too. So they're just trying to get you riled up with this episode. Yeah. (laughs) But when they do talk about the supply chain, and we'll get into that in a little bit, I can see why they make that connection, and I do think it's valid. Yeah, I totally 100% agree. So there are corruption and crimes at all levels of the chocolate like supply chain or pyramid scheme. And even... They even point out that some farmers don't even know how to turn the cocoa into chocolate and eat it, which doesn't like really surprise me based on where this, the location was and where their focus was. And when you think about it, like most farmers here, I mean, what they're say like corn. Okay. Well, they might not know exactly how to turn it into corn syrup. Or a corn-based product that just doesn't like corn on the cob. But it's a little different here because we know how to eat it. (laughs) No matter (laughs) who you are. And you could probably Google it to figure it out if you really wanted to. So it was a little, like, disturbing to me as well that they just don't even see... Maybe they don't even understand why the world likes it so much. That's totally possible because, like, we're going to describe where cocoa comes from and i already knew where cocoa came from because i I, i'm one of those people i like to learn about things so i like knew about like the seeds and the pods and all of that fun stuff but i think the reason why that blew my mind so much that farmers didn't even know what to do with the cocoa beans is because of what i do now like i grow and do things specifically because i want to know how to do everything Mm. for it on my own so like that idea i was like what (laughs) yeah so you're doing it because you want to they're doing it because they have to yeah because it's like their only way to survive pretty much a very shitty way to survive if we're being honest yeah not thrive but like barely survive so i what i thought was really interesting and you mentioned this to me before i watched it and you said we might be able to cut the stuff about like brussels belgium because it's like two seconds and it's like what does it have to do with anything but then i got kind of thinking about it and it's interesting that after the you know intro and then the credits, the opening credits happen, they show Brussels, Belgium, and they are like the European chocolate making gods, for like a better term. Like they are like cutting edge and they've revolutionized the industry with their inventions. They have that treat yourself mentality and like chocolate is an art form. And they actually have made more than 270,000 tons of finished chocolate each and every year. That is a lot of chocolate. Yeah, it really is. And they go on to talk about there's like 2,000 artisanal shops. You can have a career um, as a chocolate engineer. And they claim to be the only place where that's a thing. I don't know. I would be surprised if Switzerland had a chocolate engineer because they're known for chocolate too, right? I think so. See, I'm not a big chocolate person. I'm more of like a salty person or like a sweet tart, shock tart, sweet, just kind of like sugary, not chocolatey. 
So I don't know that much about chocolate. I do know that Cadbury chocolate from Australia or European countries tastes way better than what we get in America. Yeah. That's about all I know. And I think it has to do with the pasteurization process. <laughs> yeah. Or like their refinements. Because mm-hmm. we'll, we'll talk about the refinement a little bit later. And it was kind of interesting. Like, I felt like I learned a lot about, mm-hmm. like, what makes good chocolate good chocolate. Because we've all had, like, a crappy chocolate bar and still thought it was good. But when you have really good chocolate, you know you're eating really good chocolate. Right. So apparently we need to go to Brussels. <laughs> right. <laughs> so Brussels is also the home to the world's biggest industrial chocolate factory, which is owned by this dude named Barry Kaibu. And it's not spelled phonetically, uh-uh. but I made sure I pronounced that semi right. <laughs> and the factory refines the chocolate to finer than 25 microns, which means that the ingredients can't be tasted on your tongue. And they described it like making the chocolate melt in your mouth like butter. And it melts in your mouth at just the right temperature, which is a really tricky process and why it matters that some of these refineries can do it and some can't. What they say in the episode is that if you're going to produce a product that you're truly proud of and requires that kind of specialization, the ingredients should come from a source that you're proud of. And I'm like, yeah, I dig that. I can see that. Definitely makes sense for sure. So everyone in the industry knows the sourcing of chocolate is a big problem. And as we already mentioned, there's a lot of corruption Um, The most valuable or the most vulnerable in the chain gets the shortest stick and that's the farmer. But nobody's really doing that much or really knows how to fix the problem. And we've warned, um, we're warned in this episode that knowing exactly where your chocolate comes from is probably gonna, you know, make it impossible for you to enjoy it. Even if you're a discerning chocolate consumer and buy your chocolate based on the country of a manufacturer, like Belgium or Switzerland, for example, the source of most of the world's chocolate is Africa. And there's this lovely cocoa region um, (laughs) in uh, West Africa, primarily in Ghana, or not Ghana, excuse me. What was it? Yeah, it is. It's Ghana. Is it Ghana? Yeah, Yeah, it's it's Ghana. Ghana. And Cote d'Ivoire. Yes, that's the one I was tripping up on. Um, And 60% of the world's chocolate comes from those two regions. And this is also known as the Ivory Coast. Yes. And how did the hell do you say that again? Cote de... what? It's Cote d'Ivoire. Oh, you wrote it phonetically the line above what I was looking at. (laughs) But I wouldn't have gotten it right with your phonetic writing because I would have had to write it out even more dummy proof. (laughs) (laughs) Just my personal preference. Anyways, 40% of the world's cocoa is grown there. And it adds up to 15% of the country's GDP. It makes makes up two-thirds of all local jobs. Uh, and they grow 2 million tons of beans every year, which adds up to half of the country's export revenue. So basically, they that region wouldn't exist without the cocoa industry. It's a problem because it's not super great for the farmers there, but without it, it would be even worse. Yeah, which is kind of a heavy thing to think about Yes, when you really think about it. Yes. So the price, the price of cocoa is actually controlled by the markets in New York and London, not the locals in West Africa. Most people are out of touch with their, where their food comes from in general, and this is especially true for cocoa. Most people don't even know what a cocoa pod looks like. And spoiler, it does not look like chocolate. It's actually like a really brightly colored pod, usually like yellow or orange, maybe has some green on it. And they like crack it open and pull out a bunch of white sticky bean things yeah (laughs) (laughs) so two million tons of beans a year from Cote d'Ivoire are harvested by the literal fistful so they're harvested manually and the cultivation and harvest is described as being medieval because it's the same techniques that they started using when they started harvesting cocoa on a large scale back around the 1920s 
And cheap labor removes the incentive for modernization. And when they explained that in the documentary, a light bulb kind of went off in my head. And I was like, oh, yeah, that totally makes sense. Mm -hmm. So the only tool that's used for harvest is a machete. And each pod is individually harvested at just the right time. So just because one pod on a tree is ready doesn't mean that the rest of them are, which kind of makes mechanical harvest really difficult. And each tree bears about 30 pods per a year, which is enough for two pounds of chocolate. That's not very many. You need a lot of cocoa trees Mm -hmm. to make, what is it, two million tons of beans? Oh, my God. (laughs) Yes. And it's a really long process from harvest to mouth because one pod contains about 40 seeds, which are also known as the cocoa beans, and that sweet, sticky pulp that... Sam described. And the beans and the pulp are removed by hand and put on banana leaves on the forest floor. And they sit there for six to seven days to ferment. And the fermentation process is really important because it's required to turn the beans into chocolate. It protects the fat inside the bean, which is also the cocoa butter, and releases the enzymes that produce that unique chocolate flavor. So basically, without the fermentation, it's not actually chocolate, or at least not chocolate as we know it. Mm-hmm. And it's dried in the sun in cocoa villages where the aroma of chocolate just kind of permeates everything. And that's when they turn brown and start smelling chocolatey. Um, Before that, they don't really have anything to do or seem like they would turn into chocolate. Right. So these cocoa villages are interesting if that is even the right word that we should use for it. Um, But there are mounds of cocoa beans everywhere and everything smells like chocolate. But there's no running water or electricity, no school building for over the like the 200 students in town. Um, so one of the wealthiest industries in the world, well over $100 billion a year, is profiting from keeping the region in poverty because most farmers make less than a dollar a day. And the price paid to farmers is actually set every year by local governments. Um, and the local government is referred to as a cocoa board. So this is known as the farm gate price, which is a percentage of the London market price. In 2018, it was 750 CFA francs, which is $1.34 per a kilogram. So a kilogram is about 2.2 pounds for us weirdo Americans who use pounds instead of kilograms. Using the imperial (laughs) system. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Each tree produces a kilogram a season. So that gives you an idea of what the farmer is making per tree. Not a lot. Yeah. Not a lot at all. And the average farmer will make less than $200 per year, which is nowhere near a living wage in that area. Um, The poverty has driven some to take some very desperate measures. For example, in 2000, a British documentary exposed children being trafficked to work in West Africa uh, cocoa farms. And there was a lot of like outrage and threats to boycott from the UK and the US. And the industry was convinced that through regulations, it could be fixed by 2005. But it's still a problem uh, because governments don't have the budget to enforce labor laws. And over 30,000 children allegedly have been trafficked to work as slaves on cocoa farms. But that's one side of the story. The other side of the story is that the region claims the reported number of children trafficked was wildly exaggerated. And it's a Western journalist portraying a stereotype. And local parents don't understand why they couldn't send their kids in the field to work. So between all that, the overall theme was that there are fears the beans would stop flowing um, because of all of this going on in the he said, she said. Um, So whether that's true or not, we will probably never know. But I could see how it could be a cultural thing where maybe the parents do want to send their kids out. Just because they live very differently than we do, does that necessarily mean it's true or right? No. Yeah. And so just like the sugar industry, though, I can see how an industry where there's so much money involved and the person who's actually doing the hard labor is the one at the very bottom of the scale getting the smallest cut, how that could lead to like a desperate measure like trafficking children to work on the cocoa farm. We only want the best for our flocks, and that's why we are thrilled to partner with Grubbly Farms Grubblies, an all-natural snack that provides the nutrients and minerals for happy, 
healthy chickens. Grublies are safe and sustainably harvested in the United States at FDA-approved grub farms to ensure the highest levels of food safety and quality for our feathered families. This means everything from what the grubs eat to how they're dried is strictly regulated. Every batch is then tested for any potential contaminants and pathogens and packaged with love for your fluffy family to enjoy. When you spoil your flock with grublies, you're providing a safe and sustainable protein that's as healthy for the environment as it is for your chickens. In the USA alone, over 52 million tons of food is wasted before it even gets to the consumer every year. Grubly Farm Scrubs recycle mountains of food waste into organic compost, reducing our nation's landfill waste with every harvest. And when you nourish your little mother cluckers with Grubbly Love, you're showing love to the planet too. So head on over to grublyfarms.com and use code FARM15 to get 15% off your first order. So what is the answer to the poverty problem, Bev? Gosh, I wish I could tell you. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. (laughs) But according to the farmers, it's plant more trees. And that means that some farmers are cultivating trees in protected forests. And they do this because it's free land, right? Uh, Not really. Not really, no. (laughs) But it does mean that that land contains better better soil, which means the harvest time is like two to three years instead of five to six years. So I can see why that would be really appealing, especially when you're feeling a little desperate. Yeah, and the way that they're planting these fields in the protected forests is they're chopping down the forests and then burning the large trees and planting cocoa. And these areas are known as skeleton forests. And 85% of the forests in the Ivory Coast are gone thanks to what I called pirate cocoa farming. They didn't <laughs> use that term. I made it up. <laughs> Arr, matey, let's get us some cocoa. <laughs> but to be fair... Their choice is basically protecting the forest or feeding their families. Right. It's a non-choice, basically. Right. So there were 244 protected forests in West Africa. Now there are only 44 because 200 of them are gone because of this behavior. So, ouch. You know, when you're thinking about the environment, but I get it. They're in survival mode. So I can't really fault them. It's hard to be judgmental from our comfy couches yes. where we have enough food to survive. And I'm yeah. sitting here recording over, you know, internet with a Sherpa blanket on my lap. So, yeah, it's hard. <laughs> yeah. To, and I'm drinking my cocoa. <laughs> oh. <laughs> is that cocoa tasting a little bitter over there? It is. <laughs> so, from the outside perspective, it might be really easy to say change the supply chain, right? Maybe sell direct to the people that are actually making the chocolate. So let's go over what exactly the supply chain looks like. Um, and cocoa is sold across a chain of middlemen where each link borrows the funds needed to buy the cocoa, then sells it to the next link to pay off the debt, and then continues until it makes it to the dock for export. So that sounds kind of like a pyramid scheme to me, because each level is profiting from one the one below it. And if you know anything about pyramid schemes, the person at the bottom is always the loser. Like, they're just screwed. Yeah. Yeah. So these middlemen are kind of the problem because sometimes they take the beans without paying and promise to pay later. And sometimes when they buy directly from the farmer, they bring cash and negotiate below the farm gate um, price. Yeah, which is probably highly illegal, but who's going to enforce that out in the middle of nowhere in Ghana? Like, (laughs) yeah, nobody. So the supply train process kind of goes like this. So there is a pister. Is that how you say it? Pister? Pister? Yeah. Pister. Okay. That dude, or, well, it's probably a dude, not a trick. But that dude comes and picks up the beans. The farmer relies on him to start the chain because when you make a dollar a day, you can't afford a truck. So the farmer can't do this piece himself. Also, the roads are terrible there. And they gave the example uh, for this one in particular. They have to go 60 kilometers, which is 37-ish miles. um, And it takes them six hours. Can you imagine? (laughs) Like, the roads are that bad. (laughs) Holy crap. And this guy's job is super dangerous because there are hijackers 
um, and they have, they know you have money. So a lot of them get robbed or they get killed um, transporting the cocoa beans. And the next stop is the centralized warehouse, which is also called a cooperative. And the co-op is actually a private business. It's not a collective of farmers like it is in the U.S. So when they said that term, it's really important to define how it's different than it is here. And the co-op is the one that sends the beans to the port where they're milled and prepared for export. And the milling is when they dry and clean the beans of the dust and waste, and then they pack them into export bags. And then it's on to the exporter. Um, There are only 100 licenses a year that are issued by the government to be an exporter, and these are advanced contracts sold at auctions. Um, And they are responsible for getting the government the tax due on the export. And then it's on the ship and goes to the trader. And the trader is the richest of the middlemen. And the there's this lady that was giving an example of how you can compare the supply chain to an hourglass. And the farmers are really wide and at the bottom. The middleman is where it gets skinny and there's only a few of them. And then the top of the hourglass is the consumer. And yes, I just made an hourglass with my hands while I explained that. Awesome. <laughs> but these guys sell to chocolate makers in Europe and America. And the traders also further process the beans by separating the cocoa butter from the powder, which was really kind of an interesting process to watch. Um, And then I thought it was really interesting, too, that there are only 10 cocoa traders in the world. And the three largest are uh, Barry Cabu, which we already mentioned, and I'm sure I pronounced that wrong, Cargill, and Olam. And Cargill's a really familiar name. Yes, it is. (laughs) Because Neutrina is under Cargill. Yep. And the trader sells the chocolate to manufacturing names that you all very likely know and love, like Hershey's, Mars, and I imagine Nestle. They actually didn't say anything about Nestle in this episode, which felt really weird. (laughs) Uh, They were probably like, we were really hard on those assholes in the water one. We should just lay off for this one. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And then after it goes to the manufacturer, it goes to the retailer. And the retailer is actually a really important step because the retailer is the person that gets half of what you spend on a bar of chocolate as profit. And the retailer encourages the manufacturer to keep the price low so that they can get better shelf space. Yes. And if you've ever watched Shark Tank, you know how aggressive shelf space is because that's what all the sharks say. Oh, yes. good to know. Yes, it's difficult. So I can understand where the retailer is coming from, but it's really funny to me that cocoa beans come from West Africa, go all the way to like Hershey, Pennsylvania, all the work that goes into that and then I'm paying like what five ten bucks for a bar of chocolate depending on what exactly it is how big it is and like the real retailer is getting half of it after all of that like that just seems it kind of blows my mind right and when you think about that though like that's the way that I think a lot of supply chains work so everybody gets half of what the last piece of the supply chain got and when you spend, you know, so like you said, so it's a really nice bar of chocolate. It's ten dollars. Mm-hmm. Run that through the supply chain eight times, and how much does the farmer get for a bar uh, of chocolate? I can't. I gotta grow all my own food. Damn it! <laughs> <laughs> and in fact, like the chain's longer than that, likely because like eight. I can't do the math that fast. Not after drinking. Um, but anyways, like for a bar of chocolate, the farmer's probably getting like an eighth of a penny. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. Ugh. Well, what was even more depressing was that cocoa prices are presently a third of what they were in the 1970s, and 37% of that happened in 2016 due to a perfect storm of market saturation of cocoa and a drop in demand, and the only family-owned trader in the business lost big time during this drop and caused losses of over $352 million to their lenders because there was a lot of lying, and people went to jail. Yeah. And we're not going to talk about that story because it was kind of long, but I highly recommend that you watch this Mm -hmm. just to hear that story. And it's the story of Transmar and Euromar. Um, Yeah, it was pretty mind-blowing. Yeah. 
But that guy was still sitting in a pretty nice house after being to jail. So Uh, I don't think he's hurting too badly unless that wasn't his house. I mean, it's hard to say. He might be renting that house. People do all sorts of weird things to pretend like they're doing better than they are. Oh, that's true. Yeah. But after all that feel-good stuff, there is an option for slave-free chocolate. Which I'm so excited about. I know you are. You're so excited you already bought some. I did. (laughs) So one Dutch company, and they're called Tony's Chocolate Lonely. Their slogan is crazy about chocolate, serious about people. They're working directly with farmers to buy the beans from them and cutting out all the middlemen, which kind of seems like it would solve that price problem, right? Yeah, good for him. Good job, Tony. I hope you're not so lonely. They pay the farmers in West Africa 40% on top of the farm gate price so that they can have a living wage. And he says that paying a living wage is the only decent thing to do, and it's not charity. And now they've actually teamed up with Barry Kayabu. I probably pronounced that wrong again. We probably pronounced it three different ways in this. It's that really big trader from the very beginning. Yes. (laughs) And together, they're working on making all chocolate sustainable by 2025, which we're not super far off from, which is kind of interesting. And they've created a system that traces the chocolate in the wrapper to the beans on the field. And what they say is that their name is on the wrapper, and now they know the source of the beans in that wrapper. So it's no longer a not my pig, not my farm kind of situation like they're taking responsibility for sourcing their beans in an ethical manner and making sure that each bar of chocolate has those ethically sourced beans in it and then what i also really appreciated about the end of this episode was that they talked about innovators in west africa and they're tackling the problem at the local level which i absolutely love because you can only sit there and believe government for so long i really love a good pick yourself up by your bootstrap story I know that not everyone can do that, but I really liked that this kind of left on a more positive note. And they talked about implementing new technology like drone mapping to provide traceability and transparency for where the cocoa comes from. And it's also something farmers can use to prove farm size and health to get more financial lenders to help them out. And there's also a chocolatier on the Ivory Coast who is buying cocoa directly and exporting finished chocolates. Um, And he's also providing chocolate to his own village. Because some of those people don't even know what chocolate tastes like, even though they're chocolate farmers, which is crazy. Even though their village basically (sighs) smells like chocolate all the time. (laughs) Yeah, could you imagine? Like, that smells got to be weird after a while, too. (laughs) Especially if you don't know. I imagine you go nose blind to it eventually. Yeah. Yeah. There's also a co-op training around 200 women to become entrepreneurs in the cocoa industry and to provide chocolate to the village directly as well. So those two, that chocolate tier and the co-op go like hand in hand, which I thought was really nice. But in 2019, an effort to help lift cocoa farmers out of poverty, the West African governments tried to negotiate a new minimum price for the beans. And that new minimum price was no less than $2,600 per ton. And the cocoa industry basically refused. Rude. Yeah, it was like a big like Ugh. punch in the gut after all that positivity. Yeah. I was reading the screen. I was like squinting at it. I was like, oh, God, freaking damn it. <laughs> <laughs> and we were like, and of course it has to end that way because it's a rotten episode. Of course. Right. But you know what? So that punch in the gut at the very end, uh, what I did immediately was I opened up Amazon and I ordered <laughs> a bunch of that Tony Chocolonely. <laughs> yeah, you did. I'm a little embarrassed about how much of it I bought, but like I just like I really I really believe in their company's mission. So I was like, I'm going to buy this chocolate and I'm not going to feel guilty about it. And another reason why I did it was one of the things that I did while I was in Arizona is I got to hang out with some of my friends and um, at one of their houses at our kitchen table, we were just having a beer and chatting and she just pulls out like five like fancy bars of chocolate and puts them in the middle of the table. So we're all like taking squares and talking and drinking our beer. And it was a really fun experience. 
like to just be like snacking on all of these things together and chatting. And so I bought all these chocolate bars thinking that I can kind of recreate that with my family. Like after dinner, we can be like playing a game. We'll put a chocolate bar in the middle and just like, you know, break squares off of it and eat. And it can be a chocolate bar that we feel really good about. So I don't know. That was what was in my head while I was ordering them. (laughs) Yeah. And I went to Amazon and was like, oh, that's really expensive. And as a person that doesn't eat a lot of chocolate, I couldn't rationalize it, but you bet your bottom dollar next time I see Bev and she has that, I'm going to try it. <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. And it averaged to be about $5 or like $5.50 per a bar of chocolate. And they were six and a half ounce bars of chocolate, which sounds really big to me. So when they come yeah. out, like, I'll be sure and post photos of them in the group because I'm curious. But they looked big and they like looked dense so I have a feeling that they're going to be like worth it I mean I'm sure that they're like quadruple the price of a regular old Hershey's chocolate bar but I also think the quality is going to be you know a little better and it's hard to put a price on making your heart feel good yeah (laughs) and if that's what it takes then do it up that's what I say right I think it's great that you were inspired by something we're doing for the podcast yet again And it impacted the way you're going to purchase something because that's why we're here. We're here to share eye-opening things um, that impact the way people think. So I'm glad it's working on you too. (laughs) Yeah, it is. It's so, I mean, like if it wasn't working on me, what would be the point in all this? That's true. And I'm over here just like, F that. (laughs) Uh, But you know what? Here's the thing though. Like, I mean, like I've, I feel really fortunate that like I can just make that decision to go do that. But not everybody can just go buy bars of chocolate on Amazon. And I have a business. So I have an Amazon Prime account like already like automatically through that. So like getting things like that is kind of easy for me and kind of cheaper because I don't have to pay shipping and whatnot. Right, right. So like, I don't know. It's definitely not something that everybody can do. But I wanted to do it once at least to give it a shot and see how I liked it. Like, am I going to only buy that chocolate now? No, I can't. My kids like making, you know, like chocolate chip cookies and we have Halloween where we like, you know, pick yeah. up candy and hand out candy and stuff. But I also believe in just making small gestures and doing what you can. And clearly, like they've sold out of some stuff. So this documentary has introduced that company to a lot of people mm-hmm. and they're definitely selling chocolate. So I think even if I just do it this one time, I think it makes a difference. I think so too. And it's going to send a message to the chocolate industry if that company is doing well. You mm-hmm. know? Now I will say that I did pull up Cadbury's website, the Australian website. And it says cocoa was first planted in Ghana, now a major producer in 1879. And as in the rest of West Africa, cocoa is grown almost entirely on small family farms. Cocoa farming is a small, unsophisticated business as the current planting patterns of cocoa trees make mechanization impractical. So they're making it sound really romantic. Like that sounds romantic to me. Oh, it's on these small family farms that we're screwing over with our supply chain. So maybe we all will just start buying Tony's chick, not yeah, chocolate. Yeah, I'm really sad only. to hear that that's what they said about it. <laughs> but it just goes to show that you can spin anything. What oh, is it? absolutely. Yeah, I mean, they're like turning a turd on the bottom of your boot into chocolate. Like, Ew! Really? <laughs> okay. And on that note, we're going to move on. <laughs> to We Can't Even Corner. <laughs> Yes. So, Bev, what can't you even about this week? So, I can't believe that this giant endangered tortoise that helped save the species in the Galapagos Island is retiring this year. And he's over 100 years old and is credited with siring like 40% or not siring he has 40% of his DNA in the tortoise population like on this island which is super cool so how do you think that conversation with him went like hey torty we're not gonna let you get it on anymore (laughs) like how does how do you decide if a tortoise is done doing what tortoises do best I don't know. (laughs) But I mean, he is over 100 years old. Although tortoises live for a really long time. I have no idea how long this like species of tortoise is supposed to live. But what was so interesting about this tortoise is this tortoise had a name. His name was Diego. Oh, shoot. I was so far off with Torty. (laughs) (laughs) 
And so his DNA is in 40% of the population. He gets a retirement party when he's done, like, you know, doing his thing. There's this other tortoise. His name is E5. Oh. He just has a number. (laughs) And he's responsible for the other 60% of the Espanola tortoises. Oh. So he's really, like, making Diego look like he's slacking off. He is, but Diego got all of the attention because apparently he has a really big personality and he's very aggressive, active, and vocal in his mating (laughs) habits. I thought most tortoises were. Like, have you ever seen a video of that before? You can't unsee it. So we did. We watched that on New Year's Eve. I've never seen that before. The way that they squeak. And I've had tortoises. I've owned two tortoises, but they were both males. Yeah. (laughs) And they didn't have anything to hump, apparently, in my backyard. At least I never (laughs) caught them humping anything. (laughs) Maybe they were just really quiet about it. Right. So that was what I couldn't even about this was that this tortoise, because he was a loud and obnoxious mater, he got a name in a retirement party. And poor E5, who like did most of the work quietly and in his little introverted way, just, you know, got mentioned in a news article. We are just really feeling like we are the E5s of the world as introverts and we're just really going to be loud about it and say E5 high five. (laughs) So what can't you even about this week? So mine is from a CBS news article. I kept seeing it come up on Facebook and I was like, this is perfect. So The headline reads, heroic dog saves hundreds of animals from Australian wildfire. And it's this little doggy. His name, or her name, I should say. I'm pretty sure it's a her with this name. Patsy. Gonna go with her. Uh, Patsy is a six-year-old Kelpie Border Collie mix from Koryong, Victoria, and she faced the raging fires to herd 900 sheep into a safe enclosure. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. And um, her owner says she's earned front seat privileges for the rest of her life. Oh. So Patsy's owner set up an Instagram account for the pup, and it's called Patsy the Koryong Wonder Dog. And ever following since... Following it right now. Oh, yeah. I followed it today, too. <laughs> she almost has more followers than I do. <laughs> but I've never <laughs> saved 900 sheep from fire, so I get it. Um, <laughs> but uh, people are now, like, praising her for efforts. And there's this lovely picture on her Instagram of her sitting. And you can see the fire in the background. And she hung out there with her owner until they could, like, get a hose. And, like, the fire came close enough to use a hose to start putting it out. Oh, little badass. And she said that um, or he said that Patsy was cool as a cucumber, waited with him until the fire got close enough to fight with a tractor and water pump and that the sheep are now safe and sound. And I do want to point out, too, that I saw other articles about wombats allowing other animals to hide in their underground burrows because they'd be like these nature reserves where they would see animals that were just fine. And it was because the wombats were letting them go underground because wombats build really complex underground tunnels. Um, and I thought that was really cool, too. So they're like kind of the unsung heroes that people didn't expect. <laughs> and I just think I mean, that is so cool. Like animals are so amazing. And most of the time I feel like we don't deserve them. Um, same. So... I just thought both of those were super heartwarming and cool. So I wanted to share that today. Love those. Well, be sure, guys, and send us your can't evens. You can send them to us in the Facebook group via Facebook Messenger on Instagram, or you can email them to us at drinkandfarm at gmail.com because we're going to put together some mini-sodes where we just talk about all the things you can't even about, and it's going to be super fun. Yes. And leave us a review over on Apple Podcast if you haven't already. If you don't have an Apple product and you have a laptop, you can download iTunes on your laptop and leave a review that way. Um, what we do is we take all the reviews that we read from that month and draw a name out of a hat. And that person will win an exclusive coffee mug that is not and will never be in our shop. So that's the only way you can get it. 
but make sure you leave your Instagram handle or some kind of social media handle in the review so we can find you. And this week's review is from Allie. And the title of this review is Grab a Drink and Listen. And she says, so glad I stumbled upon this podcast. It's fun to listen to Sam and Bev talk about real life farming tactics and information while also keeping it light and fun. I learn something new every time. Pop open a cold one and listen. Thanks, Allie. Really appreciate the five-star rating that came with that. Yes, it was so fun. Yes, and good luck for the end of the month drawing. That is coming up soon. Man, January is almost done. That is crazy. Right. So a couple housekeeping items. Great news. Coop Camp 2020 has announced, been announced, and it will take place again just outside of Indianapolis, Indiana, June 5th through 7th. We'll be there. You should be too. I saw today in the group, somebody was asking questions about it and she's going to be there. So that's a great way for you guys to meet each other too. Not just oh, us. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we're fun, but you can bond <laughs> with each other too because you guys interact so well in the group. So we'll exactly. get it that way. Yeah. And there's a link to that in the show notes now. I finally updated the show notes and added that. So it'll be in all the future ones too. <laughs> yes. Be sure and hit the subscribe button and download the episode when you listen because this helps more people like you find us and do us a big favor and be sure and share this episode over on the Instagram and your stories and tag us at drink and farm because we'll send you a promo code that's just for the episode that you share that will give you a percentage off in the shop. And make sure you take a look at those show notes so you can find out things about Coop Camp, find our social medias and a link to our merch shop. So that's it, guys. Woohoo. Woohoo. We did it. Only one more episode of Rotten left. We're going to pause a week and do the last one in February. Next week, we're going to do something fun. And you're just going to have to wait to figure out what it is. Yes. So thanks so much for listening. We appreciate you. And we love doing this. We love that you listen. We love getting to know you guys. Thanks. My heart is just like all full of things. I can tell you're full of it over there. (laughs) Thanks and beer. (laughs) Good job, beer. So drink, farm, and give zero clucks. Bye, guys. Bye. We drink things, we farm things, we drink and farm things.